Being the Worst, Episode 32, recorded Thursday, June 27th, 2013. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast, audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman, with your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdulid. In this episode, Carrie and Renat answer questions about code syntax, differences between event sourcing and relational storage, and concrete examples of domain-driven design concepts. Along the way, your questions lead them to questioning themselves and to consider an alternate approach. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. All right, Renat. So we have somewhat of a backlog of some questions that have accumulated over the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight months. A lot of them are more recent questions, but uh, we thought instead of trying to go back onto the website and answer all of them, that I would pull them out and uh, we would try to discuss whatever made sense and give our best shot at some of these answers. And that's what we're going to do. You all set? Yep. All right, cool. So, uh, and I think just uh, for the sake of uh, ease, these are just in the order from beginning of episode one. I went through and looked through the website and grabbed them out. So they're all going to be in order. And I'll just mention which episode the question was on uh, in case anyone wanted to refer back to it. And probably when we publish this episode, I'll go ahead and go back to these specific comments and just make a note that, uh, hey, by the way, your answer is in episode 32. So, okay, that sounds pretty great. All right. So the first one we had was pretty uh, straightforward, wasn't it? was mainly a, uh, .NET C-sharp syntax question. It was uh, posted on episode two by John, and he pulled out a specific segment. Um, if you guys remember, if you've been following along with us in the first to uh, 18 or 18 episodes-ish, something like that, we had one big sample solution with uh, a specific project for each episode that we did. So he was referring to episode two's sample code in the program.cs file, there was a lot of that dynamic magic uh, that you explained to me back then. And he was asking uh, in the current code on line 220 in the sample code, it's uh, passing the the variable message as an object. And then you're doing uh, dynamic casting basket dot when dynamic message. And he was asking, why can't you just uh, pass message as a dynamic? Okay. Uh, so basically, first of all, just as a reminder, all this uh, dynamic uh casting thing does, it automatically wires the incoming message uh, so that it, uh, like m- message type, so that it will be handled by a specific method. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, if we have a method called apply message, and if we pass into this apply uh, method class with, for example, uh, customer created, mm-hmm. then this will customer created ar- argument will be passed to a specific method that has this customer created as an argument. Mm-hmm. And before Dynamics showed up in C Sharp, I was writing like relatively complex uh, reflection-driven code mm-hmm. to handle this, where it would scan for the class, find all methods with matching signatures, and then emit some ill code so that would create a new method. I.O., oh, you mean uh, the in- yes. literally intermediate language code. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. That would actually uh, do the mapping so that when a new message comes, it will be automatically uh, passed to the matching method. Mm-hmm. And then when Dynamics showed up and somebody showed me the trick that you can actually do the same with one line of the code, I just went and did. And so basically all I did was uh, casting the base class upon which uh, the de- all the methods sit into the dynamic and then wrapping the actual message being passed into the dynamic. And it seemed to work. Mm-hmm. And I actually never bothered uh, to think about how dynamics work, how actually they uh, link to the reflection of .NET that happens underneath the hood. And probably I've like overcomplexified this uh, one single line of code by adding an extra cast that wasn't needed. I never even bothered to think about that because it was a huge uh, reduction in lines of code compared to the manual ill generation. Yeah, I would imagine. So basically the reason why we're uh, casting uh, like two objects into dynamic instead of one object, it's my ignorance. Maybe related to the interface or something, or if you're using interfaces? Well, uh, I think there was also, uh, I might have tried to uh, do with one cast, mm-hmm. but there could have been a scenario where a message being passed doesn't have a direct mapping to the method, but there is an interface mapping. So basically in, uh, there is uh, an indirect 
matching between the message that comes in and the method that will handle it. I see. Uh, this might have been case. I don't even remember it right now. Gotcha. Okay. So it may uh, not matter at all, but uh, if you decide to shorten the syntax and things start blowing up, it might be because you were using interfaces instead of a direct uh, class that it can find. And we don't really care because you had 100 lines of IL code to manually do this, and now you just have two casts, and then you moved on with life, basically. <laughs> well, to be precise, uh, there were only like two or three lines of IL code, oh. but there, there was a hundred of lines of code like to, to match, map, uh, generate uh, <laughs> the invocation, and then also actually to invoke. To dispatch the message. <laughs> Got it. Okay, John. So I hope uh, that answers your question, and uh, it'll probably work. But uh, now you know why uh, our sample code looks like that, and we probably aren't going to mess with it because we don't care right now. All right, cool. And now we'll move on to the next one for episode twenty. That was uh, staring at a blank page episode, and that was from Clement. He asked that this year, so that's not too old of a question. And uh, he documented a few scenarios, but the short story was. He is excited about uh, event sourcing, likes uh, what we're talking about here, but he would like to hear a little bit more about some of the disadvantages of using it because he's more familiar with using like a traditional SQL relational database. And as it relates to migrating stuff as things change, he would normally start at the beginning of a system. You took a stab at your minimum viable product. You have some tables and now it's evolved. And in a SQL world, he was saying stuff like now he can kind of forget about those original table structures like they never existed before. And, and he could use, you know, schema changes and tools to uh, migrate the database and all that good stuff. And he was uh, concerned that with event sourcing, once he defined these messages and they could never be changed or immutable, he didn't really want all that old stuff uh, laying around and was concerned, you know, how do you actually do these migrations and, and not carry along this baggage and stuff like that. So can you elaborate on that? Oh, I'd love to. Okay. Well, uh, actually, uh, the answer consists from looking at the problem from multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. uh, the first point of view being my experience with using, with evolving SQL databases back in the past. And we've been doing pretty much uh, all the schema changes. We had SQL upgrade scripts that were versioned. And for example, when you need to deploy a latest version of the database to your local machine, you had to run initial uh, database creation script that was written, I don't know, like 20 years ago or maybe, no, later. And then you would run a whole bunch of upgrade scripts, that each of which would upgrade like to the first version and then from the first version to the second version, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it was all pre going pretty nice and tested. However, when there was this new version of script created, and some of the scripts would uh, not only update the schema, but they would also migrate the data for the temporary tables to make sure that uh, it fits a new table schema. And when you were executing the scripts on the production, you were never sure if the script would actually misbehave all, all of a sudden because there was a bug, and it would wipe all the tables in the production or like the important columns or rows in a specific table. <laughs> and actually switching to event sourcing gave me a peace of mind. Well, at least in this direction, I knew that no matter what went wrong in the production, in the upgrade, I could still go back because all the events were immutable and all the destructive changes would actually be a new events that uh, would be added to the end of the event only storage. So if something really bad happened, I would just ignore and skip all these uh, latest additions and we're good to go. Mm -hmm. That definitely gave a peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Second thing is that SQL schema, it changes a lot. It changes more frequently than event-driven schema. Uh, reason here being, and actually it's kind of the answer to this question links to my latest post in the blog about helping non-technical people understand the data. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, SQL databases or relational databases, they were created in a time when hard drive space and RAM space they were expensive, really expensive. Mm -hmm. And people created this new specific type of data storage, structured data storage, which would work hard to reduce the duplication. And it would also try to save space as much as possible. Uh, it would overwrite old data, it will compact, it will do all sorts of magical things. And because of that, in order to fit into this highly economical and somewhat efficient uh, way of storing data, people had to actually treat their data in a special way to optimize even the data structure, putting the data into third normal form, like normalizing or reducing duplication. And SQL databases, like the entire premise behind them, that the storage is expensive, this has changed a little bit. 
because uh, right now you can store one gigabyte uh, for one month in the cloud for 15 cents. Mm-hmm. And if you do that on Azure, actually, it will even throw in two additional replicas of data for you. Right. Or if you want to have really fast storage, you can store one gigabyte uh, per month at Rackspace on SSD storage for 70 cents per month. And so storage became cheap, and we no longer need to optimize our data for efficient storage. Mm -hmm. And if we actually lift this constraint of sticking our data into highly optimized and like technical kind of storage and stop bothering about the relational schema, and we instead focus on things that happen to the real business world, to the business events, changes in the business, then we might suddenly discover that these things don't change that often. Schema might change in a SQL database because all things are tightly related to each other and it's so compact and entangled. And so if you need to add a new type of event or new type of entity that you discovered into the system, all of a sudden you need to redo like a whole bunch of tables because it's optimized, because it's entangled. And event-driven architecture when uh, things are expressed in events that happened in the past, it's not as tangled. It's tangled to the reality. And in reality, things don't change that often. And when changes happen, it's usually when you discover something new. For example, consider a bank where you would have like customers and accounts and all of a sudden uh, a bank comes with a new type of account that would, for example, give you extra bonus on your birthday. Uh, if we were storing this kind of data in a SQL database, then some architects might design a table called list of all accounts. And this table would have additional like columns that are mapped to the properties of, of these accounts. And if we come with a new account, which is called uh, like birthday account, then probably they would either add a table of birthday accounts or they would put these birthday accounts into the whole table of accounts and add new properties to this table effectively altering the schema for all of accounts. This might require actually rewriting the ORM logic. Mm-hmm. If we're doing that in events-driven uh, way, we would just define an event saying that like new birthday account was created and then uh, define events that are related to this account. And all these events will be kind of logically grouped together in their own small context with, and they will not affect the rest of the system simply because they are not that related. Mm-hmm. Although if you were forcing your system to think in terms of the final storage, like SQL storage, then yes, you would be forced to propagate changes to like that will touch other entities, other contexts as well. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is to express the fact that events, they don't change as often as SQL storage changes. And usually, most of the time, these events are driven by the changes in reality. And as we know, like, for example, the accounting field hasn't changed that much. Right. Uh, businesses, they don't change that often, that frequently, simply because, like, they're linked to the real world. Real world doesn't change often. And even if it changes, it, uh, it can take people months or uh, even years to accept the change and uh, make it a part of their daily workflows. If at some point you get to the situation where you actually need uh, to change existing events, more often than not, I discover that it's usually events enrichment you discover that you forgot to add certain specific fields to the event that would be useful later. Mm -hmm. But uh, usually caused by my own ignorance of a business domain, and that's pretty much fixed. That you get a bunch of events that have certain fields that were empty before a certain point in time and that are populated after a certain point of time. If you're using something that supports like a relaxed version of message contract, something like, JSON or Protobuf, then you'll be fine. As long as you uh, put a mark in the documentation or on message contract saying that this field could be null or empty before a certain point of time. Mm-hmm. And then at some, some later point in time, if you get a whole bunch of these uh, versioned events and like you're tired of the inconsistencies, you might actually take uh, one iteration to rewrite the event storage towards a new format. So that particular solution right there that you just said, sort of rewriting the history to to make it all in the new format, I think that particular solution would address 
what his main concern was, because I think he was pretty much bought into the advantages of event sourcing, but it was a fairly long comment uh, and with several questions in there, and it seemed to be focusing on, he specifically said in there, he said, you see, I don't want my code to know about all the history of the schemas of my event schema since my early naive first implementation up till today and every change in between. And I think you basically addressed that in the long run, they don't typically change that much. But if it was really driving you crazy that you had this old implementation uh, leftover appendages laying around, you could rewrite history with the new format from the beginning if you really wanted to. Yeah, well, actually, to be precise, we don't even rewrite. We take an existing event storage. Mm -hmm. We uh, write like one-time script that will create a new event storage out of the old one, the one that better uh, maps reality. And we'll put the old version into the backup, into the archive. I see. Okay. Cool. Although what I find is that these changes, they don't happen that often. And definitely they happen uh, much less frequently within the product lifecycle if compared to the amount of changes that happen to the SQL database schema. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other than maybe it annoying him that the old initial naive implementations were still laying around in history, do they actually cause any real-world problems that you've experienced? Like, is there any reason you should even care about rewriting them into the new event store, to the new version? I'd say if it works and if it doesn't complicate, basically if there are some extra events that you, you no longer need, you just uh, put them into a separate folder, mark them as absolute, and ignore them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some events that were captured improperly. Uh, or, for example, uh, the business understanding of the event has changed. Mm-hmm. For example, at some point, you could have had an event called uh, user registered. In, let's say we're talking about some social network <laughs> that happens to be online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was initially user registered. And then you discovered that actually a single social network account can have multiple users or it can have multiple devices associated with that. Mm-hmm. And then later, you would want to replace one single event with three events, something like user account created user device like registered, user device activated. Then in this case, it's worth actually rewriting the entire event storage. And that's what we did at, uh, in similar situations. Okay, cool. And he made a reference, which we can post in the link to the notes, to your old, there was an old Blicky post that you did on event sourcing and versioning. Is that basically what you've been saying here? And is it worth reposting that? Or is that kind of old information now? So I believe this Blicky post was more about technical things that could help uh, upgrade your events to new versions without rewriting the entire event storage. For example, installing temporary in-memory hooks into the code that reads from the event storage, and that this hook, for example, would uh, scan each incoming event, and if an event matches a specific pattern, it will replace this event with a new type of event doing necessary conversions in memory. Mm. And that would be a temporary quick hack to avoid rewriting the event storage. Oh, I see. Although... As I found that in newer systems, I don't even need these kind of in-memory upgrades. I don't use them ever. Simply because we started doing more domain modeling and putting more thought into capturing the real world. And so basically, uh, there are no new versions of a single event. Usually what happens, like we discover new events and we obsolete the old ones. Uh, okay. That makes sense. Well, I think that probably answers... Oh, well, maybe um, just to be devil's advocate, because I, I think yes. I think you have already sort of covered these in past episodes, but maybe if you have the quick bullet point list of the reminders for people, you know, so... However, these are the three things that could suck about using event sourcing instead of relational databases. Like, if he, if he didn't hear that, I think he was mainly okay. worried about that. Okay, so disadvantages of using event sourcing compared to the relational databases. First is... Sometimes event sourcing is not a good fit because you have some uh, logic or some uh, domain that is much easier uh, to be expressed using CRUD approach, like active active record pattern, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. I don't know, for example, blogging maybe even. Mm -hmm. Like blogging and adding comments to the blog. Or just capturing user, like polling users some questions. Like there is no real point in uh, using uh, events here where... You can just save results. You can save this data as documents and pass the documents around. So that would work just fine in a traditional SQL or even a, a NoSQL document-based database. Uh, either one of those might be easier than just doing a whole event sourcing thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because event sourcing, it implies that there will be a certain amount of domain modeling effort put into that. So you need to uh, spend time designing your system so that it will match the reality. If you don't know the reality well or you don't have time to 
invest in this effort, then event sourcing will be a problem for you simply because your first understanding of of this uh, domain, your first abstraction, it will be maybe inconsistent or maybe in a good alignment with the reality. And the events that you captured, they'll not stay for long. You'll find the need that you you have to upgrade them, you have to change them, and then you'd actually end up with all the versioning problems. I see. So basically, if you don't invest uh, enough time into capturing the domain in proper events, and if the domain is not like it doesn't support it doesn't is not it's not a good fit for the event sourcing then you'll end up of, with creating a lot of additional complexity and problems for yourself and you'll end up finding that okay this doesn't fit well we need to adjust events this doesn't fit well you need to adjust events etc etc mm-hmm. so uh, basically biggest problem of using event sourcing is that if you use it in proper domain or you don't follow the procedure uh, like linked to the, getting the event sourcing done right, then you'll create yourself more trouble than benefit. And then you'll think, oh, event sourcing sucks. <laughs> right. <laughs> and would it be fair to say that uh, when you're comparing a relational database to event sourcing and the way you get access to your views, that the traditional relational strengths, I guess, of like ad hoc reporting, like your your domain requires ad hoc reporting on the fly with massive amounts of data anytime you want, and those queries are very difficult to define in advance. Maybe you want to use a relational database if you're not going to use both. You know, have an event feed to a SQL database to do that. I guess that would be one traditional advantage. Is that true? Yep. So basically, you can add ad hoc reporting on top of the event storage simply by subscribing the database for like I don't know some procedures and some or simple subscription code to the event store and denormalizing incoming events into the SQL tables mm-hmm. or just transform the incoming event stream into the star schema, give people an OLAP tool so they can go as wild with uh, their ad hoc query as they want. <laughs> yeah, an OLAP tool. But if you weren't going to sort of supplement the event sourcing with one of those tools to do that, then pure event sourcing would not do ad hoc queries very well. Well, event sourcing works for storing, for capturing changes, mm-hmm. capturing business events. It's a natural reflection of what happens in the real world because in the real world, we're dealing with things that we observe that happens to us. And this concept of capturing things as they happen, it's kind of orthogonal to the concept of asking the question, what has happened? How can we make sense of something that has happened? How we can uh, do some data mining of that? Mm-hmm. So event sourcing is just for capturing things. However, it inherently supports reflection of our uh, observations into something more tangible, into something more compact. Yeah. And if you're capturing all the changes, then you can be assured that you can always project these changes into any structural representation that you want. Yeah, that makes sense. And so SQL, or maybe even easier, like NoSQL database, something like MapReduce jobs, if you're uh, doing massive uh, querying, or real-time analytics. It's uh, all possible on top of that. Cool. Well, Clement, I hope we covered what you were trying to get out in your question. If not, you know what to do. You can go back to the site and uh, ask clarifying questions, and we'll try to zero in on what you were looking there. But uh, I think we covered it. So let's uh, go on to the next one. This was a question from Slav on episode 23, spaghetti-free terminology. And I think uh, not only in episode 23 and previous episodes and probably episodes after that, I think uh, you and uh, I have admitted many times that getting this terminology, we don't claim to have it exactly right right now. We didn't claim to have it exactly right back then. And whatever we say right now still may be wrong, but... uh, I think it might be good to specifically ask his question and see what your answers to them are today based on your current understanding after the DDD Summit and wonderful new married enlightenment. So <laughs> so Slav basically says uh, on that episode, we, re- we rehashed some of the DDD terminology, but he basically said specifically, there was a lot of abstract information here that was good, but I think I need some more concrete examples to really understand exactly what you're talking about. And I happen to uh, need that as well sometimes. So um, he said basically after all that, that he was still unclear on the concepts of domain map, subdomains and bounded context, you know, what they actually are and what the differences are. And so what's your answer to that today? Okay, so domain-driven design is kind of methodology that links together strategic design, 
like how to look at complex uh, problem spaces, divide these uh, complex problem spaces into smaller parts and deal with these parts separately. Mm-hmm. Also, domain-driven design happens to bundle in specific design patterns that help to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And like the original book of DDD bundled design patterns like aggregates, repositories, value objects. And because these design patterns were mostly linked to the existing Java practice at that point, people thought that DDD is about repositories and value objects. So these days, uh, we came to realization that actually there is a slightly different approach to teaching people DDD that would uh, do less confusion. So DDD starts with actually with strategic design and way we look at the problem spaces, the way we look at the real world, and how we like start attacking it and converting into to capturing or learning it, and then uh, maybe converting into the code that can be executed. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we come to a business, for example, this can be, I don't know, a company that does inventory for optimization for other retailers. So the main of that company, inventory optimization, it's actually the way it makes money. It's the way, uh, like, it's specialty. It's all the things it has to do in order to survive. Although, like, if you look at the domain, it will involve, or the business of the company, it will involve lots of lots of things. It will involve things starting from the doing financial calculations or, uh, sorry, not financials, uh, mathematical calculations to registering users, tracking their balance, etc., etc. So, uh, in order to prevent us from running completely insane and having our uh, brains burnt out by the complexity, we start breaking this domain into separate subdomains, into something that is coherent and can be tackled uh, separately. Mm-hmm. One of the subdomains in this inventory optimization business would be user management. The other subdomain would be data analysis and development of new models. One more subdomain would be integration of customer inventories into this system, then running uh, predefined models and then uh, returning optimized reports. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you go like if you start actually implementing software, then you would need to go deeper into the subdomain. But before you do that, you look at this map of these uh, subdomains, and it, you start figuring out which subdomains are more important for the business, which subdomains are less important for the business. Because, for example, user management and uh, user registrations, maybe some of this functionality can be offloaded to Google account management system like Gmail because people uh, can register there. Or uh, maybe you can uh, buy some off-shelf the system. Right. So uh, this, if the subdomain can be bought from somebody else, if it's like not specific to the business, call it generic subdomain. Mm-hmm. If the subdomain is important to the business, uh, it's specific to the business, but it's not the most important one, we call it a supporting subdomain. Mm-hmm. So basically, this, are, this ter- terminology just helps us to look at the business and give names to specific parts uh, of the business. So we can prioritize. The, yeah, we can prioritize. And then parts of the business that are really important that we should uh, start attacking first, they're called core domain. Okay. And so then, like, uh, DDD provides uh, specific uh, design patterns that can help us to maybe start attacking these problems, start capturing the real-world scenarios, like real-world processes in the code, and actually evolve that code, make it more refined, till we arrive to the main model, which is like our mental understanding of what happens in the real world, that is simple and maybe ignores some things, but focuses on the most important aspects. So it's like kind of useful level of abstraction. So in essence, the main model is our understanding. It's the things, it's the most important things that we've learned about the reality, about the business. Mm-hmm. So domain-driven design gives a set of techniques and methodologies that help us to learn the reality and like stay up to date with the reality as it changes. Uh, and then it provides a set of design patterns that would help us to express this uh, domain model, uh, some relatively abstract concept, the way, all the stuff we learned in the code. Mm-hmm. And as for the bounded context, basically this term is linked to the, our understanding that single word can mean different things in different scenarios. For example, in the inventory optimization business, the term item will mean different things 
uh, in the programming world, the item will be, okay, one item of the list. Right. However, in the inventory optimization context, term item will mean maybe product. Uh, the same thing, for example, event. Uh, event can be a .NET event, which is like identified by the event keyword in C-sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be an event message, or it can be an inventory event, like a promotion, discount. Right. So yeah. uh, bound contexts, they make us aware about things, about areas within each word is defined. Got it. And by uh, thinking about this bounded context, we acknowledge that in the neighboring bounded context, there might be same word, but means something different. So the concept of bounded context in DED is really all about the language. Yes, it's a language and linked concepts. And basically, by thinking about this bounded context, about these boundaries, we can kind of avoid mixing different terms together in the code and then ending up, for example, with classes that do a ton of things simply because they try to map to multiple concepts at once. Right, okay. Because Slav was really interested in the exact concrete examples, so I'll put on my exact concrete examples hat and try to grill you on that a little bit and say, so if I hear you tell me that bounded contexts are really to help me make sure that I am getting the vocabulary of the domain of the of the humans that care about this particular circle of life <laughs> and mm-hmm. getting the words right. I might want to make sure that my C sharp namespace that I put these concepts inside of reflects what I think that bounded context is. It's it's telling me the vocabulary words that I'm in right now. Uh, I'd say uh, bounded context they are out above the namespaces. Basically, bounded context subdomains they come into the play uh, even before we touch the code. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's our understanding. It's how we learn and structure uh, the stuff we learned about the reality. So we've identified our generic subdomain. We've got so we've got a map of what's going on here. And I'm backing up a little bit because I want to work my yes. way back up to this thing here. So I think Slav specifically said domain map, but I think you've always called that a context map. What's the right way to say that? Is it context? Oh, uh, it's context. It's context map. Okay, so our context map is like the big, the really big picture of like everything. Yes. I'd say that bounded contexts, they are a different layer on the map. Okay, so they're not like uh, in the hierarchy of a subdomain directly related necessarily to a specific subdomain. Absolutely. Uh, We might want uh, at some point maybe to make sure that our domains are aligned with the bounded context, but sometimes our domains will not be aligned with bounded context. Ah. Uh, For example, in the inventory management phase, the term item, which means product, it could be uh, spanning, for example, in the integration context and also in the inventory optimization product context. I see. And, for example, the term time series, it can, be, it can mean this absolutely the same in the context of creating new forecasting models, creating new optimization models and benchmarking them, and also in the context of actually running the derived models against the customer data. Mm-hmm. And actually... This term time series uh, may be even part of the shared kernel. It's like some of the context that is shared between other contexts and maybe reused, something like reusable library. And the term time series may be even surface within the inventory management subdomain simply because the inventory management has to get the data and then send it to the analytics. Mm-hmm. So bounded context just helps us to stay focused to see where each term means what. So when you've identified, let's call it, I'm making up a word here, uh, we've identified a population of things that share a bounded context for whatever reason. They all agree yes. on terminology and concepts. Like, what does that usually manifest itself as? Is that like a Visio diagram where you have a big ellipse around a bunch of things? Or like, what? It, once you've identified a bounded context, what do you as a, a DDD thinker actually do with that information? Do you write it in a paragraph? Like, what does that look like? Basically, when I visualize that, it's either drawing on a whiteboard or on a napkin where I draw circles. Not even circles. Like imagine we're drawing a world map mm-hmm. and we draw a big area for the continent. Mm-hmm. And then we start figuring out which parts of the continents are different countries. Right. These are our contexts. And when we start, we start coloring, maybe highlighting the uh, countries which are most important for us, which are maybe most valuable, which uh, have the most uh, income. 
And then when we try to uh, figure out how to attack these countries, how to deal with them, we start coloring in a different color the major language that is used by population. Mm-hmm. And as we know, uh, historically, multiple countries uh, can speak the same language mm-hmm. or different parts of the country can uh, have different language. Right. Sorry. Uh, so basically, people are dispersed. Uh, usually, they're uh, gathered within a single country, within the borders of the country. But sometimes, due to historical reasons, they're scattered out. Right, right. French Canadians versus, you know, on the West Coast. Or absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. So using the notion of bounding context, it just helps us to be aware about that. I got it. Like ideally, we wouldn't have our countries, uh, boundaries of our countries, aligned with the language that is spoken by the population. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's not the case. Right. In reality, it's never the case. Right. Well, unless if you're talking about the Arctica and Antarctica, where the language is penguin. Right. Or, yeah, you in the middle of some uh, hidden uh, rainforest, you find a population of 200 people in a tribe that have never seen anyone else that actually speak the same language or something. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, um, I think those make sense. And maybe like usually when people are asking me about, you know, I need more concrete examples, I need more concrete examples. What they really mean is the only concrete thing I have as a developer is my Visual Studio solution and my C-sharp code and my namespaces and my DLLs and my project names and my solution names and how many solutions do I have. So based on everything you just got done saying, can you maybe describe how you might turn these abstract drawings, colors, and classifications and sort of make your code and implementation a reflection of that? Like how you name stuff, how you sort stuff? Like after Slav's done all this hard DDD work, what's his stuff in Visual Studio going to probably look like then? Well, it depends on the complexity of the project. For example, uh, at least in our case, in my case most of the time, I have entire business, entire country, mapped to the entire GitHub set of account, mm. where each in account there are multiple projects, multiple repositories. In each repository, will have a specific, a different solution. Okay, so wait. So in the real world, you would literally say your country of the company called Locad has a GitHub account with a bunch of repos in it. Absolutely. Cool. And each each repository would be a different, which would deal with different product. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, uh, a product would be mapped to one or maybe two uh, contexts. Context. Okay, so one... Each product would typically be mapped to one or two of those contexts on our big context map. Yes. Got it. Okay. Because we're trying to be as aligned with the context map as possible. Okay. And then for each context, we might have one, two, or three projects, uh, Visual Studio projects. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And then it's where it gets blurry because we don't have a strict alignment between these projects and the, like, what's the word, contents of the context on the big picture. Yes. So, so, so you have, uh, you said that each one of those contexts may or have one, two, or three or something Visual Studio projects, and then are those projects, they're not necessarily mapped to the subdomains then, they're just, they just, that just happens to be what's inside them, but those projects, the contents of each project is sort of TBD based on what it actually is or what? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, because domain-driven design, it's not the exact design guideline that tells us, okay, so uh, you, you should always have all projects mapping to a specific context. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a design guideline that helps us to think and to structure our thinking about solving specific problem, mm-hmm. uh, about breaking a problem into set of small parts that can be uh, lined up and uh, dealt with in isolation. And when you get a, a sequence of solutions uh, about how to assemble these small solutions into some big product that will actually work. I see. And actually, the details of implementation is up to the designer. It's up to the common sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, domain-driven design is just a strategic design that helps us to start looking at the problem, start breaking it down, and it offers us guidelines for how to structure your work process and which patterns and which language uh, to use when, uh, while working through this process. It doesn't tell us, hey, uh, you have to use like this namespace and this namespace will be in uh, this specific this thing. It's Maybe. getting blurry around uh, after you get down to that um, sort of uh, solution slash project level around the context maps. You don't start lining things up with subdomains. The, and then the only other thing that might seem to carry over directly from the design phase is 
I would imagine that you're using that bounded context potentially to shape the language of the messages that you're creating inside of whatever you're absolutely, doing. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't say it uh, becomes blurry. Okay. But as you uh, drop down, like from, for example, from 30,000 foot view to 20,000 foot view, the perspective shifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you forget about the higher level and you, you become able to be focused on something on different level. Okay. So, uh, for example, when uh, doing locate projects, I know that I try to, in each solution, to define a specific Visual Studio project, which would contain the language for the entire product. For the entire product, okay. Yes. Then I know that I would try to have each project, Visual Studio project, mean something specific. If our product has uh, distinct contexts inside it, uh, then I would try to align namespaces and uh, Visual Studio projects with these contexts. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe even use folder structure inside of Visual Studio. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to align the implementations as much as possible with higher level uh, context map, but I'm not being frantic and fanatic about that. Okay, that makes sense. Cool. I think that was pretty concrete. I mean, I don't know how much more concrete you can get, uh, you know, because at, at some point it, you have to put on the consultant hat answer and say it depends because... It just depends. Like, there's no, I, I guess the closest thing you could say right now to give a beginner some clue would be that being said, you know, everything I just said is all basically true. <laughs> it is true. That's the way it actually is. However, uh, in my GitHub account called Locad that has a bunch of repos by product, um, 90% of the time they actually ended up looking like blah. Did you, did you discover a pattern there or are they actually all different when you open them up and, they're not really aligned in any similar way. I'd say there are certainly common patterns and sometimes they're different. Basically, domain driven design or strategic design or software design in general, they teach us how to get at some place. Mm-hmm. Uh, they teach us how to solve specific problems and how to take opportunities. Mm-hmm. So they teach us how to get to a specific uh, solution. However, they don't tell us which and how, like how the final result will look like, because it all depends on which steps you take, yeah. which uh, which road you take. For example, it's like a gardening sequence of gardening advice. Here's how to get a good uh, rose bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, are, like here's how you deal with these problems. Here's how you prune them. Here's how you fertilize them. If you get this kind of sort of bug infestation, here's how you deal with them. <laughs> But none of these gardening advice will actually tell you how your rose bush will look like. Because it depends on so much fact, so many factors. Like, were you a good gardener or uh, you didn't have a lot of time for that? Which kind of uh, rose bush did you actually plant it? What was the soil? What was the amount of water? What was the amount of sunlight? And depending on all these different circumstances, different environment specifics, uh, you would get a different type of uh, rose bush. Yeah, and I, th- I think those are the kind of things that are just really hard to, you know, there's no algorithm for the exact answer every time. And the closest we could probably get is, you know, remembering that design and implementation are two different things and it, they try to help you out. Um, but what would be interesting, because I, if I put my never seen this before hat on and, and trying to be really literal, it would be kind of cool if you or someone like you that's actually gone through multiple iterations of the design phase and the implementation phase said, Hey, by the way, this is not a formula. This is not a pattern. This is not the exact way to all, it'll always end up. However, here's the GitHub account with seven products in it. And here's arrows with colors pointing to the things that I would identify that it looks like the context ended up being called this. This is what the language ended up being. And you know what I mean? Like I, I, I wish someone would take uh, many years of design experience and show samples of like what the projects look like. Cause I think it would help beginners understand. Oh, I see what he means. How like they are kind of different, but in general, when you're staring at your blank visual studio screen and you got your design all ready to go, if you don't know what to do, here's five examples of what someone that knows what they're doing ended up doing. And don't worry about it beyond this kind of a thing. Like I would love someone to put that in a book with a bunch of screenshots with pointing with arrows. If you don't get this click here, look, see the DLL name. That's what you do. Here's a place to start. Don't feel so bad about yourself for five weeks because you named your DLL wrong. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so. Well, maybe what we can do in a set of episodes just to review existing projects. Yeah. Like, for example, one of the projects to look upon at and learn from would be actually implementation of Greg's event storage. Uh, we 
can uh, take a high look at uh, a couple of products from Locat, yeah. how they were structured in the code, and I'll share some screenshots and of Visual Studio Solution. I'd love like a DDD archaeology expedition where we just go digging through completed solutions and try to like map the high-level concepts to real-world implementations because I think that's been a pretty big gap out there. And yeah, if we could do that, uh, that I know that would help me. And I don't know, listeners, let us know if you think that would be something useful for you as well because uh, I haven't seen that out there. And that's and, and I think if you if you've been doing some programming for a while and you're used to Basically, ignoring design, uh, you have some stuff in your head and you get in your code editor and start implementing stuff. It becomes a little bit of a barrier to you. You feel like you're not making any progress and you want to skip this design stuff because it doesn't directly map to exactly, you know, <laughs> exactly what to do. And uh, seeing that uh, overlay of design on real projects that have been successful uh, and maybe even not successful would be kind of cool. Anyway. Actually, uh, speaking about the design, I think a problem that a lot of developers uh, hit is that when they're uh, trying to develop something, to develop a new product, they immediately try to picture how the design will be in the final stage, and they try to get that design from the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is, uh, let's get back to our rosebush analogy. When you plant a seed, do you already think how the rosebush will look like? Nope. When uh, you look at the small baby, is it already the time to start figuring out what college will he go to, or which university will he take? Right. Like I think that's a little bit too early. <laughs> yeah. uh, when you're when you're starting to grow a rose bush, starting to grow a baby, you have to focus on something that's slightly more important, like how to, to take a good care, how to provide proper nutrients, how to make sure that he grows. Basically, you support his growth and survival. Yes, and that's the most crucial part because if this doesn't happen, then there'll be no university or no real garden for the final stages. That's right. <laughs> so uh, what I'm trying to say is that. There are absolutely different goals, design guidelines, and methodologies for different steps in a life cycle of a product. Maybe actually that's one of the problems in the things that we've been talking about, uh, domain-driven design, and uh, like in this podcast, we weren't actually uh, making differentiation between things that you have to consider and uh, you have to do when the product just starts and uh, how you actually do the final product. Right. Because we're focusing on the final design. Yes. Although the methodologies for growing the like already grown project and for starting something out are completely different. And right. if somebody starts bothering about the final design in the initial hacking, modeling, and prototyping, then they can just waste their energy and time into designing something beautiful for the later, although the project idea behind that wasn't even like sustainable and it just died out. Yeah, I think that's, that's very likely to happen. It's, I've experienced it myself. You have an idea of what the quote right way maybe kind of should look like and you, you could waste a lot of time trying to get that right at the beginning instead of embracing evolution. So uh, Yes, uh, and so basically we're so excited about this methodology to deal with complex, with complex products uh, that we completely forgot to talk about how just to hack a product together. Yeah, that being born and breathing is actually a pretty important milestone before you become uh, president or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you have to live first before you can evolve to be great. So, and Absolutely, and actually using event sourcing or uh, starting to add messaging or starting to do all the fancy stuff with commands, it's actually the recipe for disaster when you actually start to hack a product together. Yeah, we need like a time-lapse video of, uh, you know, this baby embryo project. Like, now here's a segment of Renat starting a new project where he's going to totally do the crappiest stuff you've ever seen. And you can't even imagine he would even start doing this. And we'll see eventually in a year from now what this link really looks like. Yeah, somebody start recording that right now. Somebody who's really good. You know, I want to see that movie, please. Thanks. Uh, well, actually, uh, you already have an example of uh, this process that failed. Well, kind of not failed, but stalled getting things done project. Yeah. Instead of getting the UI out, uh, getting something that works, we're so immersed with this domain modeling experience, which actually was quite good, but it was an overkill for a small project. Yeah. So maybe we need to take a step back and hack the thing together. I think that's a great idea. I think that's a way to embrace the good enough sucky version first just to see an end-to-end working thing like, hey, look, there's a some kind of a UI that I can put my tasks in besides a console, so... Here's how I got it to work and then dig into why that might be good enough or when we decide it's not good enough, how you use these techniques to actually evolve 
And that might get into, you know, setting up your systems for continuous integration or whatever you actually do, mm-hmm. low-cut, those mm-hmm. kind of things. So we, we can get into however we want to do that, but I think that's a good idea, yeah. Okay, so basically the lesson probably learned in this episode is that uh, the stuff we, we have been focusing on, we have been focusing on uh, too much on how to mature and grow the product that uh, is already a good fit and that is known to be complex, and we know that it will survive. But we didn't focus about how to start and hack together a project in the very beginning. And actually, if you know that if you treat a kid like a grown-up, then maybe that's not a really good parenting practice. Right. In software <laughs> development, that may be the perfect way to kill a project. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yep. Because I think once you start talking about software craftsmanship or whatever technique, whatever you want to label the thing that someone who's genuinely interested in being good at what they're doing, uh, I think the tendency is to feel like you always want to behave in that manner at all times. Nobody really talks about, you know, what does Greg Young and Renat, what do, what do you got, what, what do people that actually kind of know what they're talking about actually do when they're just trying to get something going? Like, I think everyone assumes that like, well, of course, Renat would never hack together some Windows forms or crappy little GUI anymore. Like, he, of course, goes through all 75 steps before he writes a line of code. Like, I don't think anyone talks about, like, what a good practitioner looks like when he's just getting started. And that would be kind of cool to see what happens. So, Absolutely. And uh, basically, when projects are started, there is so much hacking around. And that doesn't look professional. That's just hacking. But it gets to the point of capturing the domain and moving forward with that. Okay, I think yeah. we got us, uh, how to say, the next step, how to move forward with getting things done, I mean. I think we do. Cool. Well, I look forward to that. So, Slav, good question. I think it forced us to revisit the fundamentals and actually get into a direction that's going to end up helping me and hopefully those that are following us uh, here. So, if you guys agree with, if any of that made sense, let us know. That- oh, actually, and uh, just to add that, uh, based on our uh, d- uh, communication out of the podcast, mm-hmm. Well, I just realized that I was uh, driving you in a hole, uh, in a huge trap uh, with all these things. Because, like, when you're trying to start a new project, you're actually the first thing that you're going is like to try to grab the infrastructure, to try to grab the DSL tool, to try to grab <laughs> and start coding the contracts for commands and messages and events, uh, simply because that they would capture ubiquitous language. <laughs> Although, when you actually when you're doing the hack away, there are different ways to ha- capture ubiquitous language. Like, granted, they don't they are not applicable for a long time. In the real world project, that will be a complete anti-pattern. But when you start a project, that's doing the things the proper DDD way might be a kill as well. Yeah, exactly. So that that would be a cool. That that almost gives like a, a less experienced practitioner permission to to know that like okay, I know that I can do these less than optimal techniques to get going, and and then I will see how it evolves to the quote better Nirvana or whatever. So yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. cool, cool, sweet. All right, guys, well, let us know if you think that's a good idea. I know we got off on a tangent. I'll try to edit some of that stuff down a little bit, but uh, I actually love where it ended up going, so cool. Um, All right, dude, you ready? Do you think we answered Slav's question? <laughs> yeah, well, I think we did more than that. We've learned from Slav's question. We've learned from Slav's question. We have five episodes in one here, so we'll see how it comes out, guys. Sorry, but... Uh, so. uh, let's just uh, kill the episode for now, and we will continue with uh, answering the remaining questions like in other episodes. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, then let's wrap it up. Yeah, let us know what you guys think about this episode and the direction we think we're going to head because uh, I think in the previous episode we had finished talking about event sourcing and what we were going to do with the GTD project and get that going again. So when we combine that episode with what we discovered in this episode, let's uh, stay tuned and see where that code goes and what's next. So Renat, put your thinking cap on and think how you're going to show me what good enough looks like and not to feel like... I've fallen back into old habits and I'm an old VB6 programmer that just can't move on to the new modern techniques of a true software craftsman. Anyway, uh, we are at beingtheworst.com. We are at beingtheworst on Twitter. I am at Casey Street on Twitter and Renat is at Abdulin. Anything else, dude? Okay, thanks for sticking with us and thanks for letting us learn from you. Yes, appreciate it. Good stuff. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye.